Well, this morning we're continuing our sermon series in the book of Genesis, and we're going to look at perhaps one of the most tragic chapters in all of the Bible. We have sin entering into God's good creation. I think we can we can recognize, we all have an experience of the fruit of what happens here in Genesis chapter 3, how we experience death. We experience suffering. We experience great tragedy and sorrow. We experience toiling with the sweat of our brow. We experience great pain. And as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, as one who stands upon the authority of Scripture, we understand that this was not introduced since the beginning of time. Rather, this is the product of sin that has entered into the world. And we understand that sin is an enemy and death is an enemy to be defeated. And it is defeated in Christ. If we, if we live and we reject the biblical worldview like so many do today, then you have to come to the conclusion that when you look at the world and you see evil, you see suffering, you see death, you see disease, that these things are just, just normal. This is par for the course. This is just the evolutionary world that we were born into. But that doesn't resonate with our experience, our being, our heart. We recognize evil for what it is. And so here we have an explanation of why the world is not what we perceive it it should be because sin had entered into the world. Up to this point in Genesis, everything that God has made was very good. And here we have sin entering the world, what we call the fall. This morning, because most of this chapter deals with sin, and because it's the first point in the Bible where sin is introduced, we're going to spend so much time this morning looking at what sin is, its origins, and what it looks like, and what uh, our typical response is. So I, there's five different things we're going to look at in terms of sin. I'm going to give these to you now quickly, but then we'll go through more detail. We're going to look at sin's source, sin's action, what sin does, sin's response when it's confronted with righteousness, sin's consequence, and finally, sin's remedy. So we're going to start with the first one, sin's source. And we're going to look at the temptation. Okay, we're going to look at sin's source and look at the temptation. I'm going to read to you again the first five verses of Genesis chapter 3. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So we have an interaction here between the serpent and Eve. So the first question becomes, well, who is this serpent? Because Nothing before this point in the scriptures, these first two chapters, mention the serpent. So we here learn about the serpent, that it was more crafty, that is cunning, clever uh, than any other beast of the field. It's an animal of the field. And it speaks here to the woman. Now, later in the scriptures, we understand uh, that the serpent here in the garden is none other than Satan. Many names are given to Satan, the accuser, uh, Beelzebub, the, the prince of the power of the air, Lucifer, son of the morning or son of the morning star, um, the father of lies. Okay, many different names are attributed. In Revelation 12, he's called the great dragon of Revelation. 
And Revelation chapter 12, it refers to the great dragon as that ancient serpent. Going all the way back to the creation account. So here we have Satan tempting Eve. So the question then becomes, well, who is Satan? And where did he come from? I thought everything God made was very good. And now here we have Satan tempting Eve, trying to deceive her into sin. And so who's Satan and where did he come from? And so as we consider that question, we must acknowledge that God began creating in Genesis chapter 1. And everything that was made, he made in those first six days of creation. And so in that time is when God would create a, would have created the angelic host, the angelic beings. Sometimes, I was read this morning in Isaiah, some are called seraphim and some are called cherubim. Some are just angels. Okay, there's different orders or classes, kinds of angelic beings that God has made. And he made those during sometime in those first six days of the creation week. And also, we have now Satan who is opposed to the will of God. And what's important for us to understand just in that alone is that Satan is a created being. It's not like we believe that good and evil are these two opposing forces. And we have God on one side and Satan the other. And these are two that are battling it out for the universe. Kind of like a yin and yang kind of thing where we have to understand that there's a struggle for good and evil. No, Satan is a created being underneath God. God has made him. And he would have made him good because everything was very good after God had made them. And so Satan here, as we learn later on, is referred to as an angelic being. He's called an angel of of light or opposing as an angel of light. And if you look at verse 24 in Genesis chapter 3, we have another angelic creature that was created during that first week of creation. When they drove the man and woman out of the garden, at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The cherubim, the I am ending there in Hebrew, is just meaning a plurality. There's many cherubs. We would say in English, it's cherubs. There was cherubs guarding the way with his flaming sword. And so I believe I want to show you from Scripture that Satan was one of these cherubs, not the one of these ones guarding the way to eat the Eden, but rather he was a cherub. In Ezekiel 28, there is a passage that is a lament against the king of Tyre. I'm going to read this passage to you. You can turn there if you wish. It's Ezekiel 28 verses 11 to 17, but I'm going to read this. And this is a lament, a prophecy against, a judgment against the king of Tyre. But as I read this, you're going to recognize that while some of these things are going to apply to a physical king in the the city of Tyre, that many of these things cannot be said of a human ruler. And so this king of Tyre, in his actions, he typifies, he's a type of Satan. And so, so much of the descriptions we get here help us to understand who exactly Satan is and what happened to him in the garden. So Ezekiel 28, starting in verse 11, it says, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, came to Ezekiel, saying, Son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God. So here, God is speaking to the king of Tyre and he says this, You were the signet of perfection 
full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Sardis, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle. And crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire you walked. These shining stones. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created. Till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire, these sparkling stones. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. So here we see that in these passages, this is written to a proclamation to the king of Tyre. And we can see talking about trade and stuff. There's things in there that are directly applicable to that king of Tyre. But yet the language, the imagery that is given to this king typifies someone that goes much beyond just a human king. It goes back to Satan in the garden whom God created perfect in righteousness and in beauty and wisdom who gave him a covering, these these garments like the priestly robes with all of these uh, diamonds and, and precious stones held together with gold, this shining and glimmering. He was on the mountain of God in this perfect garden of Eden. God had placed him there until unrighteousness was found in him. And so this passage, I believe, speaks to who Satan is, a guardian cherub who fell, who grew to be unrighteous. So what happened then? How does Satan, this guardian cherub created in the beginning, good and full of wisdom and beauty, how did unrighteousness then be found in him? How can a good creature sin? How did sin enter in the world through Satan? Well, I believe the the answer to this is that God created creatures good with good desires and Satan had good desires when God created him. Desires for wisdom and for beauty and to recognize these things. You think about the desire that God has given us an appetite for food. For things that taste good, we put something in our mouth that has gone sour or bad, we spit it out. Because God has given us taste and ability to have a desire for hunger and for foods that are good, so we receive nourishment. And yet we understand what is gluttony. Gluttony is when those good desires that God has given us go out of control. And suddenly those good desires go beyond the bounds of God's will for us. So it's a good desire that is this Gone wild. It's an over-desire. We see the same thing about the God-given desire that he's given us for sex. This is a good desire. Yet God says it's to be used in a marriage relationship. And it's so often that desire is activated and used in a, in a, in not in a marriage relationship. And we see the sexual immorality of our day, both in the world and in the church. And so again, a good desire that is perverted, gone, going beyond the bounds that God has given for it. 
And I believe we see the same thing in Satan. God created him good with good desires. He created him with wisdom and beauty and desire given to him to appreciate that beauty. His desire for wisdom and for beauty, I believe, grew beyond the bounds that God had given to him such that he wanted to ascend to be like God. He thought he was greater than God. He grew proud, this passage says, and unrighteousness was found in him. So these good desires grew beyond the will that God had designed them for. And so Satan falls into sin and now he is in the garden tempting Eve. Another question you might have is, well, when did this happen? We knew it didn't happen in the first six days of creation because at the sixth day, God says he, he declares everything very good and then he rests on the seventh day. No indication that anything was wrong on the first six days of that seventh day. So when did, when did Satan fall into sin and when did the events of Genesis chapter 3 happen? I believe they happened very, very shortly after God created. And why do I think that? I don't think, I don't think weeks or months or years could have gone by because if you just think about it, God gave Adam and Eve a command to be fruitful and multiply. These are sinful creatures. And here you have two beautiful people in the garden with nothing else to do, no clothes on, no children running around. Okay, and so they would have been fruitful and multiply. And because there is no children and there's no indication that Eve is pregnant here, I believe this happened just days after God created them. At the most, you know, half a month or whatever a a cycle is for a woman. Um, And so this happened very shortly after God created the world where Satan fell and now he is here tempting Eve. And I want to look at this temptation there's four things that the serpent does here. Four things that Satan does. I want to read the second half of verse 1 down to verse 5 again as we get what he is doing into our head, as we understand temptation in general and how he seeks to deceive the woman. It says there that he said to the woman, the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. There's four things I want to point your attention to with regard to this temptation. First is this, Satan questions God's word. He questions God's word. Did God actually say that? Is that really what he meant? Did God really put restrictions on you? Did he really put limits on your freedom? God wouldn't do that. In our day, we have the exact same temptation in our world. You think about our society. Did did God really say that? That Jesus is the only way? Is that really what the Bible teaches? Does the Bible really teach? Does God really say that homosexuality is wrong? Did the Bible really say that marriage between one man and one woman? Does the Bible really say that a man is to be the head of his household and that the man, qualified biblical elder, is supposed to lead the church? Does the Bible really say that? Does the Bible really say, did God really say that there is such a thing as hell and that people will suffer torment under God's wrath for all of eternity. Did God actually say that? So that's how temptation starts, by questioning God's 
word. That's the first thing the tempter does here. Question God's word. Second thing he does is he flat out lies. So the woman replies after his first question, did God actually say, she replies with what God had told Adam. Because if you remember back in Genesis chapter two, when God gives the command not to eat of this tree in the middle of the garden, lest you die, or you will surely die if you do it. He, he told that to Adam. Eve wasn't even created yet. And so Eve here gets this instruction from Adam about not eating of this tree and of not touching it. Now, so there's some that give Eve a hard time and say, look, she didn't, she deviated from God's word by adding that you're not supposed to touch it. But the scriptures never make a point uh, of any significance of Eve's statement here, saying that she somehow sinned or was corrupting God's word even before she ate of the fruit. There's no indication of that. And if you think about it, you know, if I told one of my children as they're going outside, you're getting them dressed, you, you get outside and you say, you know, I see those little red berries in the backyard are, are blossom. Don't eat those. Okay, not good for you. Don't eat them. And then other kids come out. And then when the second kid comes out, the kid that's already out there says, dad says, don't eat those and don't touch them. You know, am I as a father going to go out there and say, hey, I didn't say don't touch them. I said, don't eat them. You know, I'm not going to say that. I'm not going to correct a child who says that. They get the idea. You're not supposed to go near this tree and eat of its fruit. And so I don't think we can press and read into this response by Eve too much. But Satan's response is certainly revealing. After Eve says to him that we're not supposed to eat it or touch it, in verse 4, he says this to her. You will not surely die. This is a flat out lie. Not true. So he starts off by saying, did God actually say? And here he says, no, that's not true. That's wrong. It's not what it means. It's not going to happen. As we recognize this, we must recognize that all temptation to sin is actually a lie. Every single time we sin, we're believing a lie. There's a lie that we're believing when we sin. And we're ignoring a truth of God. For instance, we can be angry and we can be believing the lie that anger here is going to produce righteousness. That if I can assert my anger and my power, that I'm going to bring control and peace to this household. So we're believing the lie that anger can produce the righteousness of God, where in fact the scriptures say the exact opposite. Anger does not produce the righteousness of God. Perhaps we may look or ponder sensual images. We be, we're believing the lie that sexual immorality is, is an appetite, is a desire that I, I need to f- fulfill and, and it's going to bring me joy and pleasure. And we're forgetting the truth that sexual immorality will actually bring ruin to you and to your soul and to all those around you. So we believe the lie. We believe the lie that if I can take things in my own hands rather than depending on God through prayer, that I can really get things accomplished. And so we don't pray because we're believing a lie that we are actually have that ability beyond what we actually do. All sin can be boiled down to wrong beliefs, believing the lies of Satan rather than the word of God. And so if you're here this morning and you're stuck in a sin, there's something that you can think of that this is something that I have been battling against. I would ask you to, to question and this afternoon, this evening, what is the lie that I am believing? What is the untruth that I'm clinging to? And what is the truth of God's word that is going to set me free from that lie? 
And so temptation here is a lie. The third thing that Satan does. So he questions God's word. He flat out lies. And the third thing he does, he impugns the character of God. You know, he impugns the character of God. He calls into question God's character. Look at verse number five. He says, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. That is, God has made a rule that's unreasonable. The only reason he's added this rule is because, well, he's being unfair to you. He's being unjust. He doesn't want to share his wisdom with you. He's being selfish. And so God's goodness and his justice and his wisdom are here being called into question by the tempter. And we see the same thing in our own day. One of the objections that is leveled to Christianity is that Christianity is a straitjacket. It's all rules. And it makes you no fun. Because it's do this, do this, don't do that. Do this, don't do that. You can't do that. And so it's just, it's just no fun. So people have this idea that Christianity is a straitjacket, but what they don't understand is, and as we perhaps even feel that same objection in our own lives, we don't understand how that is a backhand slap to the face of God and to his character by saying, God, your rules for us are unreasonable. They're unjust. They're unfair. You, you made them so that we would not be fulfilled, so we would not be happy, so we would not be uh, receive these good blessings because you want them all. And so Satan here impugns God's character. And so we must realize that the rules that God has given to us are for our good. They're for our joy. They're for our fulfillment. They're, so we would see God for the treasure that he truly is. So that we live. And that can be hard for us to, to grapple. I know it's hard for our children. So many times when we go out with our children, it's don't get up on that railing. Get off the road. Don't, don't eat that. Put that down. And, and what do the kids think? Oh boy, mom and dad are always trying to ruin our fun. Such a, such a bummer. But they don't realize their lives are in danger. Because just over that railing is like a three-story drop down to the ground. And they have no idea what's going to happen. Okay, they're out in the road. Cars are whizzing by. They don't, they don't know. And so we give them these rules. And they think that we're cramping their, their fun. But in fact, these rules are there so they would live and flourish. And God's laws are the same. So, but here Satan impugns God's character. The fourth thing he does. He promises a fulfilled life when we disobey God. Okay, he promises a fulfilled life when we disobey God. He says, if you disobey God, then you'll be like him. You'll have his wisdom. You'll have his power. You'll be like God. And, And what a temptation this is, that you can be like God. And another temptation here that we see so prevalent in our society today. As we seek to redefine what it means even to be a human being. The whole idea that we can craft as a society. We can mold and shape ourselves because we are gods. We are the the final rule of authority. We're the pinnacle of everything that we see and experience. And so we make the rules. We call the shots. We are like God. And here, Satan 
encourages Eve, disobey God. You be like him and sin promises us things. It promises us pleasure and wealth and success and power and respect. And here, the ultimate temptation, you can be like God. Now, when we start thinking this way and we start thinking so full of ourselves that, you know, I would love to be God um, or have that kind of power, have that kind of wisdom. I think if we just think about this for a moment, we realize how absurd it is that we as creatures, because none of us here have been on this earth for more than a century. And to think that we have the capacity to be like him, the uncreated being who's perfect in every single perfection. And here we are so limited and so sinful. And we want to be him. What a scary proposition if we were. And so here we have the question, Essentially, who are you going to believe? Who is going to be your counselor? Are you going to be here a follower of Satan? Are you going to believe his lies? Or are you going to trust the goodness and the wisdom and the love of God? And so when Eve is faced with this question, the results here are tragic. Look at me in verse number six. So you see sin's source. And here in verse number six, we're going to see sin's action. We're going to see sin's action and see disobedience. Verse number six. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And here we have in Genesis 3, 6, sin entering into the human race. And so we see sin's action, one of disobedience. Now for Eve, this forbidden fruit becomes something that is good for food, good for the stomach, good looking, good for the eyes. And it's able to make one wise. I have insight if I take this food. And this is what is later said in the scriptures in 1 John 2.15, how the lust of the world or the, 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 the desires of this world that are against God, it's the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. The exact same three categories that we see Eve here contemplating. Something that is good for the body, something that looks good to the eyes, and something that is able to make one wise, to give you insight. And so Eve here takes the food and she eats. Now what is so Interesting about this is back in Genesis 2.9, God made all the trees of the garden. He made all the trees pleasant to the eyes and good for food. So it wasn't that he just made one tree especially tempting to this couple in the garden. All of them were good to the eyes. All of them were good for food. But here Satan had worked his deceit and his temptation and Eve disobeyed the clear word of God. Now, it says at the end of verse number six that Adam was here with her, which is an interesting fact that Adam was with her. Uh, the New Testament describes this event in 1 Timothy 2.14. It says this, Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Okay. And it says later in um, verse 13, Eve says, I was deceived by the serpent. The New Testament says, what, the woman was deceived, but not Adam. He wasn't deceived. 
But yet in Romans 5.12, it says that sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men. In fact, over and over again, Adam is charged with the responsibility of the one bringing sin into the human race. And Christ, the second Adam, is the one who's going to get it out. So how do we reconcile this idea of Eve, the one being deceived, not Adam, and then Adam being charged with the responsibility of the sin and him being with her? Okay. So first of all, Eve was deceived. She relied on the the tempter, right on Satan, and listened to what he said and used her own experience of this will be good to the eyes, good for the food, and able to make me wise no longer interpreting her life with what God has said in his word, but putting that to the side and using her own experience to interpret her world and was deceived. And then she gives the fruit to Adam who was with her. It doesn't say that Adam was deceived, neither here nor in the New Testament. It seems that Adam wasn't fooled by the serpent, but rather he ate full knowing that this was against God's will. He ate with full Understanding that this tree was not to be touched or he would die. And he takes it and he eats it. So he has a full knowledge of this. And so sin of human race gets placed on Adam's shoulder, not only because it was of him going forth and eating this fruit that he knew he wasn't supposed to eat, but that he was also supposed to be the head of this relationship. He was given the head of this marriage relationship. This is that we see the, the pattern all over scripture of the husband being the head of the wife and the wife to be his helper. So rather than stepping in and being a spiritual leader, rather he steps to the side, he allows his wife to be deceived and then he goes and he eats, eats the fruit. And it's interesting that later in the account when God comes to the garden looking for the couple, he looks for Adam and he calls out Adam. Because he is the one who is responsible. Like we saw last week, the husband is to lead in the relationship. Okay, That doesn't mean that he, he, drive, he has to drive the car or he has to do all the bank accounts. Okay, He is to lead primarily spiritually. First to forgive, the first to reconcile, the first to obey God's word, the first to, to lead the family, to obey the will of God. And we see Adam here not doing that. Not obeying the Lord, allowing his wife to fall into deception and then he himself eating of the fruit. So we have here God's image bearers falling into sin and now sin has entered the human race. The third thing we're going to look at in these next few verses is sin's response. We're going to see sin's response. We're going to see a game of shame and blame as sin is exposed in these individuals. Look at me at Genesis 3. I'm going to read verse 7 to 13. It says, after they sinned, in verse 7, then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, 
I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So here we see the response now as they've fallen into sin and these sinful creatures now as God comes in his holiness, they hide their face from him because they feel ashamed. They feel guilty. They feel like they cannot be in the presence of God who is perfect and righteous, whose commands they have violated. And so God calls out to the man, where are you? And it's not as if God didn't know where he was. God knows everything. But again, he's using questions to draw out an opportunity for them to confess. But rather than confess, they try to hide their sin. Instead of being broken and repentant, they hide in shame. And then they turn to blame others and to blame their circumstances. Now, isn't this just exactly how we're tempted to deal with our sin when sin is exposed in our life? Is the first try to hide it and cover it up? Perhaps tell lies and try to take the edge off the full, the full weight of what we've done or what we've thought. And then if that is not working, then perhaps we'll, we'll do that in tandem with blaming others. You know, I, I'm, I'm so sorry that I was so angry, but what you did was, oh, you got me. Like I, and then so we, we end up blaming others for our own sin. We blame our circumstances. I've had people who've spoken to me about cheating on their wife. Not physically, but cheating on their wife uh, using images and videos on the internet. And they came to me and said, oh, I feel, I feel terrible. But if my wife only fulfilled her obligations in the bedroom, this wouldn't have happened. Again, it's the blame game. The blame game. That's what sin does. It's, it's more and more sin. And then you have women say, I wouldn't have cheated on my husband. I wouldn't have, have flirted with that man if only my husband acknowledged my existence and communicated with me and gave me what I need. And again, the blame game. We blame one another. We blame our circumstances. And then ultimately we blame God. God, you made me like this. You gave me these desires. You put me here. You've, you've given me all of these circumstances. So God, it's your fault that I'm in sin. So Adam and Eve do the same thing right here. The one thing we need to remember and learn from their example is not to be like them, but to do the opposite. When we're confronted in our sin, we need to realize that's the time not to hide from God. Not the time that I can't show my face in church for the next few months because I got to get over this sin. No, that's the time to run to God because he is not only righteous, but he's loving and he's good. He is the one who is able to forgive, the one who's able to reconcile and restore. And so when he came into the garden, we should be running towards him in confession. Oh God, I have sinned. Forgive me, clean me. We need to realize we can't fix ourselves and then present ourselves to him. Rather, we should take our shame, our guilt, take that to him in confession and repentance. Okay? So there's sin's response, shame and blame. The fourth thing we're going to look at is sin's consequence. Sin's consequence. We're going to look at the curse and the destructive effects of sin. 
So for sin's consequence, I want to read verses 14 through 19. Look with me in 14 through 19. It says, the Lord God said to the serpent, okay, now he pronounces judgment. And if, before I read that, you know, he, he went to the man first, and the man blamed the woman, and the woman blamed the serpent. So then God takes his judgment now to the serpent, then to the woman, then back to the man. He says in verse 14 that he said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field and on your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field.'" 